thankful for all of that, okay? If you would look in your copy of God's Word, use 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And so we're going to have a good time in the Word today. I'm excited about uh, teaching this to you. We will finish up, Lord willing, our section here, really beginning in verse 5 and going all the way through verse 11. It's exciting to be back together again for this study. For those who are visiting with us today, or maybe it's been a while since you've been here, uh, maybe you've only been here for a short period of time, let me just say to you that uh, we believe in teaching the Word of God. That's what God has uh, called us to do, just to proceed uh, and go right through word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And I say this to you, if you've been here a while, you know that that's what we do. Uh, but if you're new or if you hadn't been here that long, maybe you didn't realize, but this is how we go through the Word of God. And so I believe that's how God has called us to do it. Every word of His is, tr is tried and found uh, true, and so if that's the case, and man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, then we need to look at all the words. And so that's what we do, and we try to work our way through that. And so in doing that, we've brought ourselves to this point in 2 Corinthians, dealing with this second chapter with a study that's focusing on the Corinthian church and focusing them on forgiveness. And this is a forgiveness that needs to occur after a disciplining of an unrepentant sin, particularly immorality in the church, and the messages over the last several weeks have dealt with the background of that situation in Corinth, and those messages were really geared to believers. Uh, the message today is still directed towards believers, and in the past, as we have gone through passages like this, we have identified them very simply as God's guide to conduct in the church. And so I've told you this before, he established the church, it is Christ's bride, he has the right to say how it's supposed to be conducted, we don't have the right to interfere and say, we will or will not do some certain thing just to read it and then do it and follow it as we understand it. And so uh, that is his guide to us. And although today it's still geared uh, for church family, we're glad to have you if you're a guest. And, and if you've not been for a while to, to really get the inside scoop of what God has to say about some very basic things for every Christian. And so it's not just exclusively to those who always attend here or always have. And, and as it is always with God's word, it, it has a direct and relevant application to life now. And doing things God's way always leads to his blessing for life because he knows what we need to live and he knows what we need to conduct ourselves in the world. And so wherever we are in the word of God, as we open it up, that will be instruction for you that is relevant. That will be instruction for you that is uh, for you to follow through and do as a believer. So our passage today that we've laid so much background for and context for is really found in 2 Corinthians 2, 5. And the first two verses give us the scenario. And that, uh, that scenario will be, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. This is how Paul starts to describe the scenario that he wants to share his heart about. And then he says in verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So in other words, uh, as Paul looks at this, as Paul writes this passage, he is thinking about an offense. Someone has created sorrow in the church. It's perfect active indicative. So it's a harbored unhappiness, a continued uh, unhappiness, a set type of unhappiness. And it describes the present reality of some inside the church. So Paul addresses them without calling out their names. And it's, it has to do with a dwelling on a heaviness, a dwelling on a sadness, a dwelling on a sorrow, a dwelling really on an infraction, and we'll see this, of a certain person in the church and the trouble they caused. So, and we've noticed, it appears, to connect us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and an individual there that we studied at length as we went through that first letter. Because in verse 6, Paul says that we just read, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. And that calls us really back to what Paul asked the church to do in 1 Corinthians 5. And we saw last time 
that this reference is, is to one of the church body in Corinth, and the reference appears to have to do with church discipline. And we filled in all that background there. And the last time we saw similar passages from other letters dealing with open rebellious sinfulness and how to handle those issues inside the church. Now, the instruction and the form to these processes goes all the way back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. And so we took a careful look at that last time. And over the course of two weeks, we've looked at all the other things as well. And so if you missed any of that, I would encourage you to go to BereanJourney.org and catch up because these are very important issues, really foundational issues for the church and, and for life in the church, very basic things for the church family. So these are not things that maybe are marginal, maybe uh, it's some kind of you know, uh, thing that you, perhaps you would know if you studied for a long time. These are very basic things about how church body works. These are things that we go through and be the church class about how to interact with one another, the one another's of the church. And so very basic to, to a functioning, a healthy church body, which is why, of course, Paul has uh, brought, uh, been carried along by the Holy Spirit to bring this to the attention of the church here. So as we've seen, our passage today is connected to Paul's instruction to the church about how it was to handle open sinfulness, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, and in particular for our study today, verse 5. Uh, and so he says this back in verse 5, and this, this describes what happens on the spiritual side in this process. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, I've decided to deliver such a one uh, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, after Paul's earlier letter to them that we looked at before, that we don't have, but Paul references that I wrote to you before, he says, before this 1 Corinthians letter, Coupled with this letter here, this is what happened. They'd finally come to a proper attitude about sin, mourning the sin. Uh, they had finally come to a proper response, which is disciplining the individual. And from the spiritual side, the church came together, understanding what they needed to do collectively for the good of the church and the individual, and that was to deliver such a one to Satan. And so th that's just what happened. And, and, the, and the realm of Satan is this world, and the wording gives some wonderful insight to the importance of the church and to the life of the believer, because to put someone into the realm or the dominion of Satan is to put them out of the realm or the dominion of Christ and his church. So it implies that there's this protection and security associated with being a believer and associated being part of those who assemble together in the local church. And so Paul says, this is what needed to happen. You came to the right heart attitude, so you understood what was supposed to happen in the church. And so when the Corinthian church did this, then the fellowship this person enjoyed was no longer his. And he was delivered over to the world and to the God of this age. And because he's a believer, the church probably had a hard time understanding this and probably said, why would we do that? And the answer is, of course, as it always is when we see instruction from the Lord, is because the Lord has commanded us to do it. And because, he says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In other words, it hurts the fellowship, it hurts the testimony of the church. So this is what happened to the individual in 2 Corinthians 2.6 that we just read about. He was put out, he lost the fellowship of the believers in the church for a time. Now back to verse 5, he says this, For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul explained that the spiritual dynamic of discipline that would be going on for the destruction of his flesh, this is everything including being more, uh, mortal, so the body and everything connected to it or generated by it, uh, the family, those kinds of things get turned over into this realm of Satan. Satan's given then a, a judicial right from God to afflict this individual in the flesh, in the physical body, and this was for a specific purpose. And so during this time of discipline, this individual may have experienced physical pain, he may have experienced suffering, he may have experienced, and we don't get the specifics here about what happened, we didn't get the details from Paul on the church's discipline of Hymenaeus and Alexander either, from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. We just uh, know that uh, there's some specific instruction that was given, uh, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 says, I'm going to put them out uh, for the destruction, for, into the realm of Satan, so they'll learn not to... Um, 
uh, not to falsely teach or not to blaspheme. And then First Timothy says this, too, uh, when we see this uh, just unrepentant sin or we see people in rebellion against what the Lord has said, who also with many others suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And so that, that's another thing we didn't talk about last time, but it's one of those deals that is part and parcel of just doing whatever you want and not doing what the Lord has specifically said. You, you just suffer, you suffer shipwreck. That's the wrecking of testimony that occurs when believers in rebellion refuse to do things God's way. It's part of the sorrow the believer here in Corinth also knew. A shipwreck, if you will, in regard to their faith. But even though Satan was given this job to do, to bring about judicial purpose for this believer, which is chastening, there's nothing to fear ultimately because that last part of the verse says uh, that he may be saved, that his, that, his, uh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So uh, the marvelous thing about that is this, that even though Satan's given this job to do and he's got this judicial purpose for the believer, Satan can't touch his relationship to Jesus. So the, the implication here is this, that this, whoever this individual is, they're going to be turned over temporarily into this realm. Uh, the church decides to do this, turn it into this realm of the world. And the redeemed spirit, though, cannot be corrupted. It can't be ruined. It can't be destroyed because he's kept by Jesus. So he may be in willful rebellion or she may be in willful rebellion, but because they're kept by Christ, uh, that verse ends this way, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is the path that had to be followed, and Paul told them what the ultimate results would be. At some point, it could be a change in behavior. That's the point of all chastening, is a change in behavior. So uh, the, the initial, the initial uh, beginning of this chastening of putting out is because there's a behavior that's contrary to sound doctrine. Like we saw several times last time, we looked at a number of passages that have to talk about that, and all different ways to, to walk apart from the Lord, but to walk in, in direct rebellion to sound doctrine is to be put, putting yourself in a place where your, your behavior has to be changed. So chastening is to change behavior, and at some point it could be repentance and reconciliation, which is the goal of all discipline, to bring the, the erring person back into the fold. But ultimately, as it relates to any deliberate sinful thing believers do in rebellion, the idea is that on the day of the Lord Jesus, when that day comes and everyone is standing before him, that person will stand there with the redeemed. But they may pay a very high price in the physical life on earth before they get there. And so that's the whole idea. Now, this is what has happened inside the church, okay? So Paul addressed it initially, which we don't have that letter. Paul addressed it again in 1 Corinthians. And then he's addressing the same thing again in 2 Corinthians, and we're on the back side of this. And we saw last time. This is how the guidelines of Matthew 18 uh, get, uh, have laid it out for us. It was supposed to work then. Uh, this is how it's supposed to work now. This process, step by step. And if you didn't catch that last week, please catch that on BereanJourney.org, and that'll fill that in for you. So after this second communication with the church in Corinth, they finally acted, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 6, sufficient then for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that makes sense, right? Because we understand that they went through this Matthew 18 process and the church came together and said, yes, this person is, is in unrepentant rebellion, doing what they want to do. And so they're set outside of the fellowship of the church. And so we see this has occurred. So Paul re references it, inflicted by the majority. And that makes sense. They, they, the church was told and collectively they regarded the individual as an evangelism prospect. And we, we said that before. Uh, because when someone walks in, in, in rebellion against what the Lord says, they really are acting like an unbeliever, even though they're not. They've willfully decided to do whatever they want to do. Typically, it's, I know all of that, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway, that kind of thing. And so when they decide that, they're acting like an unredeemed person, and so the church regards them just like that. So it just establishes what's actually going on, and the church is able to deal with them in kindness and deal with them in, in graciousness, but deal with them in firmness and say, listen, this is not the way you should go. You have to redirect your steps. And so... 
That's what happened. And so that's how it was supposed to work then. That's how it's supposed to work now. And, and after the second communication, the church did what they were supposed to do. And so we don't know what happened to him in the realm of Satan. See, um, what, But whatever it was, the chastening that went on in the realm of the world system coupled with the loss of fellowship. See, that's the other part. The church doesn't fellowship with him. They don't treat him like an enemy, but they don't, they don't treat him like a close believer anymore. God caused the punishment commensurate with the infringement. That's the whole idea, sufficient. So it was equal. Whatever happened was equal to what had happened in their life, and it brought them to the right place, and the believer here responded, and whatever it was that happened, he learned his lesson. So you can hear Paul's heart here, as we've heard so many times since we've started this letter. And he says, what you did was right. I know it was difficult, hard on everyone, see? But now Paul says, we have to move on to forgiveness. You're holding on to this infraction. You, some of you are remembering the trouble that was caused by this individual, and what we need to do now is forgive. So verse 7 says, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So there's this point where it has accomplished what it's supposed to accomplish, repentance has occurred, change of behavior has occurred, and so then it has to end, and then it has to be, and we're going to see this in just a few minutes, this marvelous thing of forgiveness and acceptance and, and love and comfort and all these things that are part of forgiveness inside the church okay so obviously the direct application here is to church discipline the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort otherwise one, one such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow but i think it's a much broader application to to everyday relationships offenses misunderstandings and i think as we go through this today you'll understand forgiveness and embracing individuals and all those kinds of things are super important uh way to 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 build bridges back to broken relationships. And so uh, five times Paul uses this form of the word forgiveness in verses 7 through 11. So it's important. And we've looked at many illustrations of forgiveness in command form, told to forgive, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. I mean, it's just in command form, right? It's not like if you think about it and if you're feeling, you know, gracious, go ahead and forgive. No, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Just in command form. And we've seen it in the form of benefits, specifically from Matthew 18, 23, where we saw clearly, you know, God has forgiven you, so you should forgive because you were forgiven an unpayable debt. You have to forgive every other debt, which is certainly payable. God will forgive you if you forgive. And so there's this one-to-one. -one. You're forgiving, and God is forgiving you on a regular basis. We saw also if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you, where we saw you know, to not forgive, really in the light of Matthew 18 and verse 23 and following, is so embarrassingly absurd and, and, and uh, outrageous to think that we've for been forgiven an unpayable debt and then we'll hold something against someone else. It is the gold standard. Matthew 18 is the gold standard, both for discipline and for understanding what you're doing in discipline, the Lord has ordained. And then finally, for forgiveness and what that looks like and how outrageous and, and ridiculous it is to hold on to, to other offenses somebody has against you when you've been forgiven an unpayable debt. So that if you don't forgive then, and we saw this last one, if you don't show mercy, you'll be chastened. And, and we've chased those principles all the way through the New Testament many times over. So you understand that, okay? These are those four main things you really can't get away from. And so forgiveness, we've seen it in command form. We've seen it in the form of benefits. And, and so today, we're just going to pick out the benefits listed here. So I'm going to go through, and we've laid a lot of groundwork here, and all these benefits are positive, just Paul sharing his heart and helping the church gain ground over the sin of unforgiveness. And I think that you'll enjoy this. It's going to start at verse 5. We're going to move rather quickly because we've laid all the groundwork. And I just want you to come away with some very important things that can help you as you understand the benefit 
of those who forgive, a forgiveness benefit inside the church. And you'll find these in your notes, and if this is helpful, you can copy there on the back of your bulletin. Now, look at verse 5. Now, we've looked at all parts of this. We've chased down all the different words, why it's important. So now we're just going to go back and look at the words that Paul wrote, see his own heart as he expresses it to them, perhaps read between the lines as we know something about the context of Paul and his relationship to this church. So that's where we're headed right now, okay? Now, look at verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Now, Paul gives them his attitude. Paul has mourned over this situation, and so he knew what to do. Uh, He was sorrowful over the sin that was in the church. He was sorrowful even more that the church didn't respond correctly to it. And we saw that he was there with them in spirit. And we know that what was happening there affected Paul, as sin inside the church always affects the entire church and other churches too when you don't deal with it correctly. Their disregard of his initial instructions no doubt compounded his sorrow, but he has no continually harbored hurt. So the first benefit forgiveness brings is forgiveness takes the ego out of the equation. And here's the deal, you know, because ego and pride are big factors in unforgiveness. And if you think about that, I think you'd have to agree. Ego and pride are huge factors in unforgiveness. Because someone does something and you don't like it and it insults your sense of self-worth or it insults your pride or it insults who you think you are or whatever. And then you perhaps wallow in self-pity or you think of ways to retaliate. But forgiveness, listen, takes the ego out of that equation. Because self-pride, beloved, doesn't find itself in very good biblical company. Forgiveness just takes the ego right out of it. If any of us caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me. You know what? Paul had been caused continual sorrow by this church. And certainly by this infraction inside the church. They had been disrespectful to Paul. They had said unkind things to Paul. They gossiped about Paul, backbiting, all kinds of things about Paul. Listen, Paul says, listen, he's caused sorrow not to me. Paul's ego was just out of the equation. This is Paul's heart. They know what they've said. Listen, people are reading this letter who were so harsh to Timothy that he was fear of his life. Okay, this is what's going on in the church. So they read this, and Paul says, listen, there's no sorrow harbored on my part. So forgiveness just takes the ego out of that equation. Verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. There are a number of things I think we can see from Paul's heart here. The second benefit, closely connected to the first one, a heart of forgiveness makes it hard to take offense. Makes it hard to take offense. So mark this context, okay? The letter comes. The forgiveness has occurred. The chastening happened to the individual. Um, the hardship, the disfellowship occurred. The person changed behavior, came back and re- with a repentant heart. Paul's not there for all this. He didn't get the apologies. He didn't get the asking for forgiveness that undoubtedly occurred from this man to the church. Paul didn't hear any of that. He didn't get any in on any of that conversation, okay? And here's the deal. He doesn't ring in here and say, you know, he's apologized to everyone, but he still needs to apologize to me. How many times have you heard that? Well, I would forgive them, but they've never apologized to me. They've never even asked for it. I'm sorry. I don't recall that that being a mandate for you to extend forgiveness. In fact, I find it n- numerous times that you were supposed to overlook that completely. So very important. Paul's not there. He's not saying, you know, he never apologized to me. He just, no, we're good. And beloved, can can I propose this to you as you hear Paul's heart? To be difficult to offend because you won't take offense, that's a really wonderful quality. Did you know that? That's godliness. Okay, you can't pull that out of your hat. 
That's the normal reaction is to take offense, okay? You've got to be spirit controlled if you're not going to be easily offended. Do you know people like that who are not easily offended? I do. They're wonderful, aren't they? I mean, you could joke, you can goof around, you can do all kinds of stuff, you know. Maybe you didn't talk to them one, one time, one Sunday or whatever, you, you know. They're not offended, right? You, you, didn't, you didn't call them up and invite them over. You know, it's just life, you know. We do life together. We make mistakes. We say things we, you know, that are misconstrued or whatever, you know. We blunder, and, and the person is not offended. That's a great quality. And you kind of see it with Paul. Hey, you know, it was sufficient. I don't have to have any, I don't have any apologies to me. He doesn't have to say anything to me. Listen, I'm with you in spirit, and I'm good. It's just great. So wonderful qualities. And from the same verse, we get this third benefit of forgiveness. Forgiveness knows how to show mercy. That's the last part of the verse. By Paul's understanding, he's, he's been through enough. Paul, as Paul understands what happened to the individual, of course, he doesn't tell us what happened. He doesn't tell us what happened. But he must have repented, and now is the time to restore him. And, and we have seen this before, but we don't uh, want to fall into the group that gets mercy but doesn't give it, right? You, you ruin the bridge that you, that you have to cross. Remember? You know, he who needs mercy but shows none ruins the bridge he has to cross over. So, you know, Forgiveness knows how to show mercy. That's a marvelous benefit to a, a forgiver brings. Paul had to wait. Now, listen, Paul had to wait for the discipline to bring the man to repentance and regret. So you can't jump over that part, right? It has, the process has to work out. The discipline has to occur. The disfellowship has to occur. And then the change of behavior has to occur. And then the person coming back in repentance and sorrow has to occur. And then when it's occurred, it's time to show mercy. That's good. We're, we're at that point you need to be. Okay, we don't skip over that part and say, okay, we'll just show mercy. He had to learn not to disobey the Lord. Hymenaeus had to learn not to blaspheme. You know, uh, the, the contentious person in Titus had to learn not to be contentious. I mean, these are, the, these are the ways that that has to work. But when it's done, it's done, see? The church had to, had to put out of the fellowship this person, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 3. So that had to happen. But some of them were still holding on to this chastisement, see? And dwelling on the trouble, and dwelling on the misunderstanding, and all the hurt individuals like that cause, in a ripple effect, out, see? So, as we saw in Matthew 18, 18, whatever the church binds is already bound in heaven, whatever the church looses is loosed in heaven. It's time for the loosing of the discipline, Paul says. We're all done now. Paul says it's sufficient what he's suffered. Now show mercy. So, take out the ego. It's hard to be offended when you, when you forgive. Forgiveness knows how to show mercy. Now look at verse 7, and we'll see our next benefit straight from the heart of Paul. Verse 7 says this, So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This is the fourth benefit of forgiveness. Here it is. Forgiveness brings joy and comfort to other people. That's a marvelous thing to bring, forgiveness brings, isn't it? You know, those are such wonderful things to bring to people, aren't they? They, they come to the forgiver, too. Did you know that? I mean, do you remember David? Remember after Nathan the prophet confronted him with his grievous sin. Do you remember that? And, and the Lord disciplined David, and he had a lot of sorrow, didn't he? Because, listen, sin always steals joy. It always steals comfort. 
and it always steals well-being, and it steals blessings. Sin always does those things for sure. It steals all that stuff from you. Don't think that sin is going to be okay even for a little while. The more you're in it, the longer it's going to keep you, and it's going to take you farther than you want to go, and it creates all kinds of attitudes of, of disrespect and disobedience in your heart. So sin does that, but it creates sorrow. It, cre it steals joy. It steals comfort. It steals well-being. It steals blessing. And it replaces those things with shame and sorrow and regret, and that's where David was shame and sorrow and regret he was outside of the blessing of the lord he was inside a sin and nathan had to confront him and david's very hypocritical at first and realizes no i'm the one and then he just he pours it out all before the lord and now he's now he feels shame and now he feels he feels all this grievous sin and sorrow and regret and perhaps you remember psalm 51 was written by david to recall in a song that experience and so we get to feel what david felt listen to what he said psalm 51 1 he says be gracious to me O god according to your loving kindness so he's calling on God's loving kindness, right? That's who we have to appeal. That's what we have to appeal to on a daily basis, don't we? God's loving kindness, because on a daily basis we sin, don't we? And so we appeal to God's loving kindness, which is this long-suffering patience with us, even though we disobey from time to time. So he calls David calls, "Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness." Not because, in other words, not because I've been a good guy up until now, not because you know I'm the king and all, not because you know I've done a lot of good things and I've slain my ten thousands. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Beloved, did you know that? That's the heart of repentance. Did you know that? That is an expression of the heart of repentance right there. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. There's no hiding that. That's the heart of repentance. The Lord's chastening can bring us there. See, that's the point of the chastening. It brings us to that point. And then he says this in verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now listen. He realized even amongst all the problems he created and the hurt he caused everyone around him and the grievous nature of his sin and how it affected other families, that ultimately he had what? He had disobeyed the Lord above all other people. Certainly he had, he had, he had wounded all kinds of people, hadn't he? And affected all kinds of people around him. And yet ultimately he knew in his prayer to the Lord that ultimately it was before the Lord he had sinned. And he'd sinned a bunch of other people against a bunch of other people, but ultimately it was this. So that you are justified. So he goes, listen, I've sinned in your sight. So you're justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. So he knew he, he had ignored the direct commands from the Lord. He knew that God had the right to chasten him. And there was no excuse that could be brought forward to mitigate his sin. That's the whole point. You're right when you speak. And I'm not going to try to justify myself and why I did this this time. And I'm not going to try to figure out why I messed this whole thing up and how I messed it up and how it was somebody else's fault and how I was alone and whatever, you know, and what I saw. It, none of that. No justification. You're right when you say what you say and you're right to do what you do. When you judge me, you were right. You're blameless. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, all, that doesn't mean it was born out of wedlock. It just means this. You know, all my pride is gone. David the king. Okay? Nope. 
I was a sinner from birth, and I'm no more than a sinner before you right now, and I'll never be anything else besides that, okay? Other than what Christ, there is no good thing Paul says in me other than what Christ has put in me. So ultimately it comes down to that. That's what repentance looks like, see? Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you'll make me know wisdom. Paul, uh, listen, David is at this point, he says, I know you want that, so that's why I'm saying these things. They're true. You desire truth in the innermost being. You want me to confess the things that are true about me in the light of your word and what you have expected from me. No justification, no mincing words, no spinning it around and make it look better. Listen, just speak the truth. That's, that's true repentance. I have done what I've done. Listen, I have been many times overwhelmed in baptismal pool because you know I love for people to give their salvation testimony from the pool because it's, so, it's such a strong reminder of what it, meant to, what it means to be born again. When someone's standing in the pool and they're ready to go buried with Christ in symbolic form and raised to walk in newness of life, when they do that, it's such a strong, overpowering testimony to say what they were saved from. And I've stood up there and I've had people say, I was a wicked man, and I was a thief, and I was a, you know, I, I was a liar. I was a murderer. All those kinds of things people say. Why? Because that's true, right? And we're so used to hiding everything. We want to make sure nobody sees anything. We're, we're not even the remotely interested in confessing our sins one another and be healed. Not even, we want to make sure nobody gets inside there. But, beloved, there should be some people who do. And most of all, the Lord knows. And when you confess that like that, just openly, listen, that's exactly what he wants. He says, you desire truth in the innermost being, and the hidden part you'll make me know wisdom. Then he says this, after he gets all done with that, he says, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now mark this, this is the point, okay? This is what forgiveness brings. Make me to hear what? Joy. And gladness, let the bones which you have broken rejoice, hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquity. See, sin robs you of joy. David was bankrupt of joy at that point, wasn't he? It always robs you of gladness. And forgiveness brings those things back, see? That's why Paul says, forgive and comfort. Don't let it be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And that word overwhelmed is a pretty important word. It's a word that could certainly sense in some of David's psalms. We just saw it just now, right? And how about Psalm 2211? This sounds over, like David's overwhelmed. Be, be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. He's right down at the bottom, isn't he? And one of the things forgiveness does is deliver us from the overwhelming sorrow of past things, see? That's what had happened. This person had been brought through discipline and brought to this point of repentance and change of conduct. And now they were coming back and they were right down in the dust. And what does Paul say? Listen, bring, bring this joy, bring this, you know, this, this uh, forgiveness to this person, comfort. That's what they need, see? And that word overwhelmed, catapino, aorist, passive, subjunctive. So the word, it, it, the mood is con of a, a mood of contingency. So in other words, this person could be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow if what? You don't bring joy and you don't bring comfort. Do you, do you know people like that? People who've gone through difficult things? They can be overwhelmed. 
See, it, it's, a, it's passive, so something's acting on them. What is it? It's, it's the weight of all that's occurred, see? And, then the contingency, and, and this contingency is, listen, they can be overwhelmed by that. They can be consumed. It's the word used of wild animals when they, what they do with their prey. That's that word. They can be consumed by sorrow. You remember the fruit of the Spirit? Love. What's the next one? Joy. Peace, right? Listen, beloved, this is a footnote. You know, forgivers bring those things. Forgivers have those things, okay? And, and I'll just say this, okay? Many of the people I know who have a difficult time with depression, catch this, please, are people who don't forgive or don't know they have been forgiven. Did you know that? They're consumed with sorrow one way or another. They have held on to offense for so long, see, for so long that it's robbed them of love, it's robbed them of joy, it's robbed them of peace, and they continue to sit there, or they don't know they have been forgiven from the things that they've done, and they continue to bottom out in that depression. So see, both of those are the wrong reactions, because both of those, the Lord provides help for both of those, see, and he does it through you, okay, for you to speak that word of truth. Don't let them be overcome, bring love, bring joy, bring comfort. And you know that word comfort, you know this word in verse 7. What do you think that word is? Parakaleo. What is that? That's the compound verb to call with or to call upon. The sense of the word is coming alongside, parakaleo. We understand that. We've seen it over and over again. That's, that's, um, it's one of the words used to describe the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. And a forgiver, listen, with the act of forgiveness brings comfort and perhaps delivers someone from being consumed by their sorrow and regret and does that work that the Holy Spirit does too. So that's a marvelous picture. Paul says, it's my heart. See, when forgiveness brings that. And so again, it's a wonderful thing to be. And all these are benefits of being forgiven. Let's look at the next one. Wherefore, verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. This is just simple, right? The fifth benefit of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a genuine expression of love. And I, I worded it like that, and, and Paul words it, Where, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him in the NASB. And neither of those English translations really captures the true meaning here. Paul uses the verb kerosai, aorist, active, infinitive. To, that's the word reaffirm, okay? Now, if you know infinitive, you know that it's functioning as the subject of the sentence, okay? So the term is a term for ratifying a document, affirming its genuineness. Paul says, forgive, catch this, forgive, and he'll know your love is the genuine thing. Now listen, that's not new to us, is it? That sounds very familiar. And if you were with us in our study of 1 Corinthians, you know 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5 say exactly the same thing. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, mark this, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, as I many times say during weddings, those are not adjectives. It's not patient love, okay? It's not kind love. Those are all verbs. In other words, love waits patiently. Love does kind things. Verse 5, love, catch it, doesn't keep track of bad actions. That sounds familiar. Didn't David give praise to the Lord? Lord, blessed is the man who you do not account on righteousness to, right? You don't remember anymore.
Listen, you can say you love someone all you want to. And you can say you love the church body. But the Holy Spirit carries Paul along to confirm again in 2 Corinthians, just like he did in 1 Corinthians, if you really want to demonstrate authentic love, forgive. Because authentic love does that. See? That's a great... That's a great benefit, isn't it? Forgivers really love. And as a side note, beloved, I really believe this is public acknowledgement. Terosai is really reaffirmed publicly. So the idea is this, and it could be, and most likely I think all of this is the public affirmation of the whole church of the reestablishment of fellowship. So it's not just personal. It's not just individuals going and bringing comfort and bringing joy. It's not just individuals reaffirming love. See, If the discipline had to get to the point of public disfellowship, which here we know that it did, the last of Matthew 18, verse 17, then this is the public affirmation of fellowship reaffirmed, see, of love demonstrated in such a way that they know that you really love them, bringing them back into the fellowship. Now let's look at verse 9. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. So the sixth benefit of forgiveness, forgiveness proves obedience to the Lord. Forgiveness proves obedience to the Lord. Now, I love how Paul threw this in here, don't you? And again, you know, it shows you're an obedient child of God. I think primarily it says forgiveness proves your obedience. And I think that's the primary emphasis of this whole thing. Again, Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So when you forgive, you prove your obedience to the Lord. So not only are you bringing joy, not only are you doing these other things, but you're actually showing that you're going to be obedient. So Paul just brings it right down to brass text. And, and I would say, this comes to my mind right now, you know, if forgiveness didn't bring all the other things with it, okay, so if, if you didn't get, if it didn't bring the joy, if it didn't bring the comfort, if it didn't bring, you know, if it, if it didn't reestablish this, this close fellowship and all that kind of stuff, it didn't bring anything of that nature, if we couldn't pick any of that out, we'd still have to do it, Right? I mean, and I think we see that in the Word of God pretty often, don't we? I mean, the Lord will say, don't do this, particularly. Some specific instruction, do not do this. And maybe from our humanness, we would say, why? Because you can't really see at that point any benefit to not doing it. In fact, doing it might be kind of fun, right? But the Lord just says, this is not part of what I have for you. And so what do we have to do? We have to respond in obedience and then not do it. Or if the Lord says, do this certain thing, then we may not know what the benefits are and may not be able to pick them all out and perhaps they're not readily visible, but we would still have to respond in obedience and say, okay, I'm going to do this certain thing. And I think, you know, we have to take it in that way. Forgiveness proves obedience to the Lord, see? Because we know he's told us to forgive. We've, we've seen clearly it's been uh, specifically commanded and then blessings shown to be part of the case of forgiveness. So certainly there's that enticement to be that kind of person, but ultimately it's just obedience. And Paul says then, he says this, he says, for to this end I wrote, see? So I think we must acknowledge that he's referring to everything else that concerned this issue as well. So not just forgiveness, but he wrote all of this. So perhaps he's thinking about the first letter he wrote that we don't have, and then what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and now what he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For this reason I wrote, just in a more broad sense, it's everything. So in other words, number one, getting the right heart attitude about sin. I wrote to you to see if you would obey in all things. See? Not just sitting quiet, not just kind of waiting to see what happens, not just kind of stepping back and this is not my business. 
right? But actually bearing one another's burdens and pursuing one another, all the kind of things that we saw. So getting the right heart attitude about sin, I wrote so that you would see, I would see if you would obey in all things. Number two, doing the right thing about it, okay? The right heart attitude, then doing the right thing about the sin, not sitting back watching, thinking you're compassionate somehow, that you're more gracious than the Lord by just ignoring all of this, see? But doing the hard things, because faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs 27, 6, right? When you go, those are faithful wounds. And of course, it would also include the last part, forgiving. It had to get, I think it includes all of that, okay? In specific, I think it includes forgiveness. But I think in general, if you look at the whole thing, for, to this end I also wrote, it's just the test from the Lord. You know, and you know this, you know, it's tough. And unless you're walking in the spirit, to forgive someone who has seriously offended you or caused you a heartache, that's, again, that's a spiritual ability. You're not going to pull that out of your hat. See, that's not ordinary. And Paul says, I wrote this to test you. And you're like, what? God tests us? It's not a cosmic grandpa that just kind of takes whatever you do and is okay with it? You know, listen, if you've read through the word of God, you, you know this right well, but I'll give you a few examples. Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. It says this. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Now catch it, that I may test them whether or not they'll walk in my instruction. So what's going on here? So he's going to provide food from heaven for the entire group of Israelites in the wilderness. They've got nothing. He's going to rain manna out of heaven. And he's going to rain way too much manna out of heaven. So it's going to be all over the ground. But how much are they supposed to collect? Just one day's worth. So what's going on here? The Lord says, I'm going to give you way more than you need. But I'm going to test you and make sure what? That you'll be obedient to me and just take enough that they need for today and not too much. And what happened? Several of them took more than they were supposed to have. What happened to all of it? It all spoiled, right? Because the Lord's like, no, that's not what I said. But I'm going to test you. So I'm going I'm to provide for your need and over your need just to make sure that you know what you're supposed to do and you do what I've asked you to do, see? Even providing for their needs, he's still testing their reliance on him. How about Jeremiah 20, verse 12? I love this one. Yet, Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind, the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. See, listen, it's common knowledge to the prophet that the Lord tests the righteous to see if they'll walk in his instructions. But in this context, the context he's saying, listen, test the wicked, Lord, and bring your wrath on them. They won't obey you. But he just says, listen, I know you test us. Just common knowledge. It, it shouldn't surprise us that you test us in these things. See, Deuteronomy 13, 1, probably my favorite of all of them. So he's talking to them about people who will come and speak uh, to the group. And he says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. So he comes and does some special miracle in your midst. And then um, the sign and wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. So he comes to them and he says, listen, Let's go after other gods. And to prove that we should go after other gods, I'll do this sign or a wonder, and then it comes true. Okay? So here's a false prophet. He's telling them to do a false thing, and he does a sign, and the Lord allows the sign to happen, whatever it is, to verify it appears that he's telling the truth. So that's the context. Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. So that's what he says, and he does a miracle to prove that it's the right thing to do. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the, catch this, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. 
So catch the situation, see? If someone tells you to worship a false god, and I even allow the miracle of prophecy to come true, understand this, I'm doing that to see if you'll obey my commands above anything or anyone else. I'll confirm the words of the false prophet just to make sure you'll do what I say and show me that you truly love me by being obedient. How about that? That's kind of a tough test, right? That's what's going to go on in the tribulation time. False Christ doing false work, and some of it will come true. 1 Peter 4.12, not all the Old Testament. Beloved, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery goal or ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your, what's the word? Testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, why should that surprise you? If you know my people and you know me at all, you understand that I am constantly testing those who are mine to per perfect them, to make them a proven worth. Why is that surprising to you? This is common knowledge. Peter says, you know, you're having some difficult times and the Lord is using them to test you. Will you be found to have proven worth? Is that going to be the outcome of the difficult times you're going through? We saw, you know, that not too long ago. Will, will you say, you know, all these things are against me or this is from the hand of the Lord and I will patiently endure? Which one? And so Paul says then, back in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, he says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Well, number one, I wanted to test you in the hard, sorrowful ministry of discipline. And number two, I wanted to test you in the difficult and self-sacrificing, love-affirming, joy and comfort-bringing work of forgiveness. I want to test you in both of those things and see if you would be obedient. And again, as a footnote, I think, and I, I've said this before, many modern churches have really failed this test massively, both of them. They won't do either thing in a biblical manner. They won't pursue discipline, and they won't mourn after sin inside the church, and they won't go after forgiveness and get it all out of order and all mixed up. And I think it would be fair for the Lord to ask that church, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Because I'm testing you, and man, are you blowing it. And I think he could say that individually to us, too, as we understand what we're supposed to do inside the church. Listen, do you love me? Will you do what, I'm, what you're supposed to do in the gracious, loving way that I've told you to do it, but firmly knowing the little leaven leavens the whole lump? Are you going to do that? See? Because I'm testing you, Paul says, in this, to see if you'll do both. Verse 10, look there with me. But one, of, one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Forgiveness benefit number seven. Forgiveness shows a sincere love of the fellowship of the church. Did you catch that in his statement? For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ. You know, no matter how many times someone says they love the fellowship of the church, forgiveness proves it. Everything I do, says Paul, is really for the fellowship of the church. It's no big deal, if you will, to forgive when you think about it that way. And I think that's Paul's attitude. Four times he uses the root word forgive. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. You know, I'm one with you, with this guy, and anyone else, too, whoever it is. Forgiveness is natural to the church body. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes. And, and that probably, catch this, that probably takes in everything else that Paul's had to endure, too. So you just kind of hear his heart. You know, they know what they've said. They know what they've thought. They know how they've undermined him. Listen, and he says this, whatever I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes. Everything that could be construed as an insult to Paul, the disrespect some directed towards him, we're still directing towards him. We're going to see that later even in the book we're in. 
The gossip, the slander, the rumor, misrepresentations, the resistance to leadership. Paul says forgiveness shows you love others in the fellowship more than you love yourself. And then he says this, he says, in the presence of Christ. I love how Paul qualifies statements that he makes from time to time. We've seen this over and over again. Paul just affirms his statement of his affection for the fellowship. He lives, if you will, as it were, his whole life right in Christ's presence. And that's a pretty great way to think. And I, I was thinking about that in my office this week. You know, we see this a lot with Paul, but is this, should this be uncommon for us? I mean, that's the reality of every believer, isn't it? Do we not live our lives constantly in the presence of Christ? Yeah, sure we do. I mean, how, catch this. So if that's the case, how, and this is just, just as impactful to me as I want it to be to you, okay? How resistant would you be to forgive if you could look up at any moment in the middle of that offense against you and see Christ's hands and feet in his scars. Talk about someone who was, who was offended without cause and was crucified, though no fault of his own, see? And Peter uses that as the example of how to bear up under, under hard things, right? I mean, in the last part of 1 Peter, we get, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, you, you get it in this same way, after you talk about how Christ suffered, in this same way, you know, if, you're, if your master's hard on you, or whatever it is, you know, bear up. But how hard would it be to forgive if, if you're living in the presence of Christ and in your mind constantly is the offenses towards Christ whom he said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Right? How about Stephen? In the middle of a, a stoning, unjust, I looked up into heaven and said, Father, forgive them. Right? I mean, there's tons of examples. We just go, we could spend the rest of the time just on that. I'm just saying, you know, just in general, I don't want to build too much into it or, or spirit, over-spiritualize it. I'm just saying, Paul says, in the presence of Christ. And I think that's, those are not idle words for him. It's a marvelous way to think. And all my forgiveness is really, Paul says, for your sake, Jesus, to make you look good. And the love I show will be authentic, and all the comfort that I give will be like the comfort I get from you, and I'll be your hands, and I'll be your feet here for your sake and for your glory. See, and That's really ultimately where the bar is, isn't it? And it's not because they deserve it, or maybe they do, or they've been nice, and I'll just forgive them, whatever, your, your wife, maybe, or your husband, or whatever it is, okay? And maybe I'll do it because, you know, I'll do it for Christ's sake. I'm living in, in a light of Christ. You know, for our young married couples, this is the way you're going to walk faithfully together for the long term, is to be spirit-controlled. And so let that offense dwell for a moment. How long for a moment? And then you forgive it. Why? Because you've been forgiven an unpayable debt. Why? Because you're living your life in the presence of Christ at all times. And if you want that to, you want to move on into in richer and fuller ground as you grow old together, you're going to have to do that. And no amount of communication skills and five points in a book and whatever is going to make that happen. I'll tell you what's going to make that happen. You let the word of Christ get in you. You let it dwell in you with wisdom. And you start doing stuff like, the, like we have ex examples over and over again. And you'll find your relationship takes a 180 degree turn. Because that's how we're supposed to deal with the, 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 uh, you know, the brothers and sisters in the faith. That's how we're supposed to deal with our wife and with our children and all that. Listen, this is how it works, okay? This is not a secret. I'll be your hands, I'll be your feet here, I'll forgive. And I do that all in the presence of Christ because I just live to please him. And when I'm pleasing him, I'm certainly going to be pleased, pleasing to the people who are beside me, okay? 
So again, you know, living in the presence of Jesus is just Paul affirming the truthfulness of the unmistakable fact that he did care about them and he did love them and whatever he did was for their sakes and Christ affirms this because I'm saying this right in his presence. See? And then finally, verse 11. We're going to close with this. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Benefit number eight, forgiveness thwarts the work of Satan. That's a pretty good benefit, right? Satan comes to steal and what? Kill and destroy, John 10, 10. He has fiery darts and lies and falsehoods, and we need a shield so we can extinguish them. He corrupts the gospel. He and his fallen angels appear as angels of light. He wants to propagate pride that caused the fall with everyone. See? His own fall, Adam and Eve's fall. He wants to continue to propagate that. See? He wants sin, and he wants it to run freely. He wants animosity between people, and he takes a lot of ground. Catch this. He takes a lot of ground in the church through unforgiveness. I mean, two times in the New Testament, we see that specific thing. Anger that's un, that you haven't dealt with, so you haven't done, dealt with it in forgiveness. And we see right here, again, an advantage taken of us by not offering forgiveness. Two times in the New Testament, saying Satan takes advantage of us when we do that. So I would say that's two more times than any of the other things that we hear people claiming Satan's doing, right? I mean, it takes a lot of ground in the church through unforgiveness, and that robs the church of joy and fellowship and unity. And you can see this happening, you know, holding on to the offense and gossiping and harboring a judgmental attitude and holding back love and, and, and compassion and remembering what happened over and over again, right? What somebody did to you, whatever, disdain for the trouble that was caused and the people that were hurt. Listen, Paul says, when you don't forgive, we fall into his trap, see? And I just want you to imagine this for a second, okay? As bad as that sounds, that really places him as the head of the church, doesn't it? I mean, as soon as we stop forgiving, we've really placed someone we don't want as the head of the church right at the head. We'll do exactly what you want, see? And we can do that by being more tolerant than Jesus, and we can do that by being more legalistic than the lawgiver. Okay, we just have to fall inside of where he says to do, okay? It's not okay to be more tolerant than Jesus was with the church. You're not more spiritual, you're less spiritual. And it's also not okay to be more legalistic than the lawgiver, okay? You can't just keep holding on to things and, you know, listen to a bunch of rules you have to obey. That's not spiritual. Rule, rule keeping is not spirituality. Spirituality is spirituality, okay? And, and Satan is okay with not dealing with sin, and that'll destroy the holiness that's supposed to be a trademark of the, of the bride. And he's okay with dealing with sin with a lack of forgiveness. That accomplishes the same thing, see? You know, and... You're like, you know, they want, they want to throw Satan out and cast Satan out and bind Satan, whatever. Listen, you have a very simple formula here to evict him from a lot of territory he shouldn't be in. And we talked about last time, you know, Satan goes around like a roaring lion. He seeks whom he may devour in their sin, exposing them as a hypocrite. He loves doing that, see. He desires like he did for Peter to sift us like wheat. In other words, putting us through the threshing process and then, in the process of doing that, he's eliminated all the compassion and the comforters and the helpers and all of that kind of stuff, all those people who would come alongside and help in that difficult situation, and he's replaced them with backbiting and gossip and innuendo and rumor and no support. See? So that, that's how that works, see? The church kind of flips and becomes the opposite of what it's supposed to be. That's his schemes. That's what, it, that's what he says. 
take, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for not ignorant of his schemes. That's, that's, uh, that's how his mind works, see. That's, that's what his plots, if you were, his craftiness, that's what that means, his schemes. What goes on in his head? How do we know that? Well, the Lord has given us his word so that we are aware of what goes on in his head, right? The Lord has uh, told us his background. We know how he fell. We know what he was thinking. We know how he deceived Adam and Eve. We know some of the activities that he has participated in throughout history. Because if we read the word of God, we can see that. We have the narrative of his temptation of Christ. So we know how he goes about that temptation and how he appeals to certain parts. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And he just kind of works through that with everybody. It's not, he's not changed his, his thinking in that respect. He's refined it, and he realizes he can take a lot of ground if he promotes the, the, the society's attitude of not forgiveness. That's weakness, right? Holding on to things and revenge, that's strength. We know how he attempted to work in the early church. We know from this passage and from Ephesians 4 that he works willingly and eagerly through unforgiveness. And listen, beloved, lots of people want to do something about Satan, okay? They, they see him in everything, even in their own fleshly desires, their own will that they've, they've uh, turned towards the world. They, oh, Satan's done that to me. No, you did that to you, okay? If you're a believer, he's not in charge. You don't lie in his lap. You're choosing to do what you want to do, okay? Don't blame that on Satan. People always, they want to blame Satan for everything. Listen, they, they want to bind him, they want to cast him out, all this stuff, listen, claiming things that even don't even apply to them. Can I propose to you that if we don't want him to take advantage of us, and if we don't want to roll out the red carpet for him at the front door of the church and say, come on in, then biblically, the best thing we can do, the biggest thing we can do is to break up his influence is to what? Forgive. I mean, I think that's pretty biblical. That's, that's straight up. I mean, we can, we can suppose a lot of other things, but that's, I think that's right there in the text, both of those things. Forgiveness thwarts the work of Satan. We're not unaware of his schemes. We know how his mind works. Forgiveness just evicts him from territory he shouldn't be in anyway. You can evict a lot of trespassing right now, beloved, right where you sit, and that person who offended you may not even know they've offended you. And you've held on to it, and you've let them offend you over and over again in your mind constantly for years. And you've got a root of bitterness in there, and Satan has an open door to your life, and you wonder why things are so bad for you. Listen, not only are you under the Lord's chastening, you've rolled out the red carpet for his influence. You can evict all of them right now. just takes a second. Forgivers bring a lot to the table. Forgiveness brings a lot of blessings to the church. It slams that door closed for him taking a ground he shouldn't have. Forgiveness loves the fellowship. Forgiveness proves obedience to the Lord and just doing what he says. Forgiveness has genuine love. It proves true love. Forgiveness brings joy and comfort to others. Forgiveness is merciful. Forgiveness is hard to offend. Forgiveness takes the ego and pride out of the equation. Do you want to belong to a church like that? I want to belong to a church like that. I want to be part of a church who does that, including me, see? If we do, then let's study and pass the test and enjoy the blessings of letting go. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to just teach through this and hear Paul's heart. As we've looked at all the difficult things that are part of being a believer, there's certainly a lot of joy. There's certainly a lot of wonderful fellowship and and uh, communion together and with you. We, we love that part. We love the blessing. We love the meeting of needs. We thoroughly enjoy the friendships you've given us that are so dear to us, more dear than even our own families. You've replaced many of our unsaved loved ones with saved people. 
who perform the same types of things and give us the blessing of their relationship like our family perhaps would if they were redeemed. Lord, you are good that way. And we're so grateful for that. And Father, I just pray that um, as we evaluate this section of of Scripture, which has taken us a little while to get through, but uh, has so much background that we need to understand, Lord, I pray that we'll be willing to do the hard things. Help us to live in the reality of your presence. Because that really impacts everything we read. As we read your word each day, help us to live in the reality of your presence. As, As we read that word, we know that's a word from you, and you're watching to see how we perform that word. And Lord, help us to condition our minds to be thinking that way as Paul did so often and called on you as a witness that this is actually how we think. May you be a witness to the reality of your presence in our own life, even right now as we pray and you see us and you see our deceitful hearts. Let us prove our obedience to you through the test of discipline, and the test of forgiveness, balanced and applied the way you've prescribed it, and all the other things that we're to do, meeting of needs, encouraging one another, blessing one another, praying for one another, confessing to one another that we be healed. Lord, help us to be that kind of church. We want to move in that direction, Father. Not to sit static when we understand what we need to do. And I pray that you'll work in every heart here. There's no words of mine that can ever convince someone to do what you have commanded them to do. Only your Holy Spirit working freely in their life, and I pray that you do that even now. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said.